we are on the brink of a mental health crisis. And this is why I am so appreciative of the folks over at BetterHelp. They provide the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. Sign up today. Go to BetterHelp.com and use the promo code Solving Healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to Quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, welcome back. We are in full effect with Dr. Ardell Piper, obstetric gynecology specialist, Fellowship in perimenopause, menopause care. She's changing the boogie, yo. She's straight up saying enough is enough with women suffering. She, on this episode, threw down about why hormone replacement is safe, dispelling some of the myths from previous studies like Women's Health Initiative back in 2002, and just providing a lot of clarity when it comes to hormone replacement therapy. So I think... You guys are going to love this one. So much juice in this episode. Before we get started, make sure to go to quadcast.substack.com. This is where we're housing all our juice, yo. All of it. Straight up. You got early content. You got the videos of, of our interviews. We got blog posts, vlog Pulse. I just recently found out what that was. All our podcasts, content, health and wellness tips, everything is housed in that bad boy, and it's beautiful. So go to quadcast.substack.com, where we change the boogie. Anyway, without further ado, Dr. Adele Piper. Quadcast Nation, can I tell you how excited I am to have Dr. Piper in the mix today because this has been a long time coming. We've been back and forth and, you know, this has been a topic that has been so important and I've been so excited to get her on the show. But most importantly, I didn't realize this till recently. You're a fellow Albertan, apparently. Yes, I am. I'm a farm kid from central Alberta. Uh-huh. Oh, I need more details. Where, where's, where's central Alberta? <laughs> So a big metropolitan center that we would shop at when I was a kid was Red Deer. So I come from a little town called Bashaw, Alberta. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> I actually don't know Bashaw, but is it near Olds? Is it near? Panoka, Panoka, Camrose, you know, Red Deer. Yeah. It's kind of right in that. Yeah, we. Um, I went to high school in Panoka, actually. Oh, right on. I, I, I knew yeah. I liked you for a reason. Yeah, so I, I'm born and raised in Edmonton and came here approaching 20 years. Oh, my God. But uh, anyways. Wow, thank, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, you don't hear too many obstetrics, gynecology specialists that are experts in, in menopause or see many perimenopausal or menopausal women. So what drew you to it? Why? Why is this your career path? When I was in my training, of course, we all go through obstetrics and gynecology training and, you know, delivering babies, hysterectomies, all that stuff. You know, I loved it. Um, But then when I got onto my reproductive endocrinology and infertility block, my REI block, we were a little bit lean on um, REI opportunities and clinics at the time when I was going through. And so I was um, sort of offered to say, hey, can you find some other areas of endocrinology and women's health that you can just find a clinic? And I was like, what? Well, um, it so happened that in Saskatchewan, where I was training, we did have a menopause clinic um, run by a family doctor. And we and so I booked in a bunch of time with her. I already knew her from delivering babies with her. And um, I just loved it. Um, You know, these longer appointments where you really understood where people's journey was bringing them from. Um, Of course, a lot of unmet need, like a lot of women who had symptoms that nobody else was addressing or talking about. And I really liked slowing it down, even though we all love running around and delivering babies. Um, but it was also really satisfying to just sit down and listen to people and hear their stories. And, and so I, um, I found a fellowship. There was only a couple in Canada. Currently, um, the main fellowship program is in Toronto with Dr. Wendy Wolfman. But in 2013, we still had one here in Ottawa with Dr. Elaine Jolly. And so at the end of my residency training, I came here and did my year of fellowship. And then I stayed. Amazing. It's just, I, I, I find it interesting because there's clearly a gap in in care for dealing with perimenopause and menopausal women. And I, I'm full, full disclosure. I was very new to the topic. I, you know, I, one of our co-producers was mentioning how it's just a huge gap. And then also illustrating some of the dire symptoms and pathology that happens as a result of being untreated so maybe before jumping into some of the options what what what's a typical patient like that comes to see you well the average age of menopause um where you can have your final menstrual period is you know statistically 51 but the normal range where you drop and finally are done with your periods can be anywhere from 45 to 55 And perimenopause, which a lot of people don't appreciate, is, of course, you know, your ovaries don't don't end like a switch. Of course, you start running out of quality eggs. Um, That's why our fertility is waning already in our, you know, late 30s, early 40s for some people, right? Yes, some people can have babies into their 50s, but that's pretty rare. Most people are already having troubles, and it's because their egg quality is reducing. And so as soon as you start getting closer together periods, heavier periods, maybe worse PMS, hot flushes at the time of your PMS. All these things are signs of perimenopause. And that can happen in your late 30s if you're going to have your final period 
in your mid forties, right? So mm-hmm. typical people that would see me, um, I'm getting more and more perimenopause because of course, more and more people are realizing that their symptoms are legit due to something happening with their ovaries. And so, um, I'm getting a little bit more of that demographic. Um, of course, um, lots of premature ovarian insufficiency. So that is people who have, um, uh, no, they run out of eggs to take them beyond the age of 40 even. So people who lose their periods in their thirties and it's not PCOS, it's that they don't have anything left to ovulate. And then I see a lot of, uh, post-cancer thrivers. So of course, breast cancer, um, um, people who've had, you know, cervical cancer or uterine cancer or even, um, colon cancer, because a lot of what I do, um, with coaching when it comes to vaginal dryness and low estrogen sort of consequences um, is a, a big impact for people who are um, trying to thrive after cancer. And now they have um, all of this pain and dryness. So uh, it, it's quite a variety, actually. Yeah. And 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 as I, I was slow to learn, like the symptoms that many women are coming to you with can be pretty significant. Like you, we often hear about the hot flashes. We hear about the vaginal dryness, but the, the foggy headedness, the, um, fatigue, uh, the, 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 even like some people being diagnosed with mood disorders and then being put on, uh, on, uh, medications for that. Like it's pretty significant. Yeah. 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 No. And, and so, when it comes to, so we've done a lot of content, uh, those that haven't heard previous episodes, we talked about lifestyle modifications that you could make to, to try and minim, uh, reduce your symptoms. But hormone replacement therapy has been, uh, you're seeing more and more news mm-hmm. about this and, and, and mm-hmm. questions about this. So this is why we wanted to bring uh, Dr. Piper in the mix. But what, again, what is the where to start like the the value of the of HRT what are the risks like cuz this used to be really taboo like it would, to find someone to prescribe it uh would be quite difficult so maybe we'll start there like what was the concern with prescribing hormone replacement therapy years ago well before 2002 there wasn't much concern um the statistics are that in the late 90s probably 50% of the population you know, in the state, so presumably similar with us, um, 50% of, of menopausal women were using hormone therapy. So, and at that time it was Premarin um, and, you know, often Provera, that was what was the most common regime. And um, um, so it wasn't a big deal. Um, I think menopause counseling and acknowledging that this is a normal physiologic stage and talking about the symptoms I think um, was quite common in the nineties, but then in 2002, when the women's health initiative was published, um, it's a very unfortunate story because um, women were doing very well on their hormone therapy in the nineties. And um, so well that really the the WHI was designed to look and see, well, you know, since we're seeing people having these great outcomes when we're starting them younger, you know, what is the possibility of hormone therapy reducing heart disease and reducing some of these chronic conditions? And so it was designed to actually take people not acutely going through menopause who had symptoms and needed to be on therapy, right? You take those people and you randomize them, you're going to have everybody dropping out who gets a placebo, right? So they intentionally were recruiting women in their um, later 60s, um, early 70s. There were only a few people that were in their late 50s even. And this is the group that they recruited because they were relatively asymptomatic and you could randomize them. 
And so that's what they did. But then this is a group of people who some of them were smokers, some of them were overweight, some of them had been on hormone therapy, some of them had not. That doesn't bother me. That's real life, right? But the problem is that that's not the typical person that we put on to hormone therapy. Mm. And what we now realize from that study that is useful is that there is something we call the window of opportunity. So when people are newly menopausal, um, you know, they're going through symptoms because their body is in screaming for, for help, right? Now, not everyone has horrible life-altering hot flushes, right? 20% of the population um, will say that they don't have much for hot flushes. Um, a lot of people will have, you know, mild, moderate hot flushes, but there are people, probably at least 20% that will describe them as severe. Um, you know, people who their, their life completely goes offline. They quit their job. Um, you know, people can be suicidal when um, their symptoms are horrible. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, they were taking people not having all of that horrible symptomatology, but later on. And it was designed to, to hopefully go for about 10 years because, look, you know, it takes a while for heart disease to develop. So the objective was to look at them at least 10 years later. But when they cracked the study at the five-year mark, um, they thought that they saw more breast cancers in people who were using hormone therapy. And they just decided, you know what, that was kind of when breast cancer, I think, was picking up a lot of speed. And they're like, if there is a possibility that this is causing breast cancer, we're done. Well, that hit the news as hormone therapy equals breast cancer. And that has now been a blanket assumption for the last two decades, right? It resulted in, like, you can see the stats. It's fascinating when you go to presentations about this. The, the, the incidence of hormone therapy prescriptions just dropped People stopped using them. They were like, what kind of poison was my physician giving me? Physicians then backed off and were like, what? That's not anything we want to do. So then the people who were horribly symptomatic weren't getting then much help from physicians anymore because physicians want to wait on randomized double-blind control trials that give them evidence-based practice. And so all these people horribly symptomatic went into the compounding industry and were looking for ways that they could get their symptoms managed. Prescriptions for antidepressants went up. Um, osteoporosis incidents went up. So bisphosphonate prescriptions went up. You know, a lot of things we actually were now able to see um, more clearly the impacts of untreated menopause because after 2002, it was pretty much taboo to, to prescribe. Hmm. Um, and so that, that has then resulted in this sort of gap about 20 years of really, I think, dwindling interest in menopause from the physician community because if you can't fix it, then, you know, hey, we're all overwhelmed with things that we can fix, you know, call schedules that need us for babies and hysterectomies and whatever else. So asking people about their menopause became, I think, less and less relevant until, you know, finally people don't, lots of women don't even think that their doctor is going to help them with their menopause. I mean, this is illustrates so many important points, Ardella. It's like one when you look at these studies, you always got to ask yourself, is this a study population that's in front of me? We talk about this a lot in the right. ICU. Like, is that patient that's sitting 100%. in front of my desk? Was that patient in that WHI study? And as you well, like, well articulated, these are, this is a different population. The older, I saw like the comorbidities too, may have been, uh, there have been significant comorbidities. I might be making this up, but even there's a level of obesity too. Like I, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. like it just mm-hmm. once again, you got to ask yourself, age. is that your, yeah. And like the fact that yeah. they were 60 yeah. and above or, so I think this is a really good point. And then we always have to look at cost benefit too. Like, as you mentioned, that window of opportunity, like 
Because, like, maybe we could illustrate, too, like, the risk of going untreated. Like, what are some of the risks downstream? Yeah. Well, now we have so many people who have really suffered with untreated symptoms. So we know that hot flushes are correlated with cardiovascular disease. Um, Mm. I feel it's still a bit of a chicken and egg question, right? Is it that you have already some sort of vasculopathy that makes you more vulnerable than to hot flushes? Or is it that the hot flushes are causing inflammation over and over in your vessels as you're blowing off steam 20 times a day, and then that predisposes you to heart disease? I don't think that answer is out there yet. I would find that interesting. But we do know that untreated hot flushes um, have an impact. Um, uh, Of course, if you have untreated hot flushes and night sweats, then you're not sleeping. What is the impact of chronically not sleeping? And so many women have just felt that that was, you know, par for the course. Women are used to not sleeping from the years when they had their babies. You know, they just kind of think it's something that goes with the territory and they put up with it. So there are so many women who've had chronic insomnia and that's just hot flushes and night sweats. Um, you know, some of the biggest, um, I think, um, damage that has happened as part of that WHI is this blanketing that, hormone therapy is bad and therefore all hormones are bad and then that means then that you say younger women who've gone through premature ovarian insufficiency or surgical menopause in their 30s and such have been afraid to go on to hormones that are absolutely indicated Mm. we have data to say that women who are not um, replaced with hormones when they've gone through surgical menopause do have earlier onset osteoporosis cardiovascular disease and higher risks of dementia right and that's in that young population the data is not quite as clear in the women who are in an older population because again you know plus age right plus another decade or two of other things that have impacted your health and your long-term chronic conditions. So it's very clear for the young people. And it's also very, very clear that the vaginal estrogen products, um, and now there's some that are not even specifically estrogen, but they're just vaginal therapies. Those have been lumped in together with avoid hormones at all costs. Hmm. So it means then that we have had untreated genital urinary syndrome of menopause, which is the new term, which um, helps to appreciate that it isn't just vaginal dryness, because if you talk about only vaginal dryness, then that is kind of a conversation that really only active heterosexual women think that they're a part of. But if you talk about the impact on bladder, when it comes to frequency and urgency and bladder infections, um, there's a fantastic urologist from the States, um, Dr. Kelly Casperson, who is now on a soapbox, like with the rest of us saying, vaginal estrogen is a bladder medication. Stop thinking that this is a sex medication. It is for your bladder health. It is for your vaginal health. Um, When you don't have estrogen in the vagina, the tissue becomes thinner. It becomes um, more fragile, um, of course, more painful with intimacy. But also, you lose the shedding of the cells and the glycogen and the things that contribute to the microbiome, which then puts you at elevated risk of you know, not only just itch and discomfort, but bacterial vaginosis and vaginitis, you just don't have as much, you know, resilience, even in your vagina. Mm. So all of these things have been um, sort of a a downstream effect of the WHI and how women have been untreated. One study just, (laughs) and think how many women have gone suffering. And I mean, also media also obviously having a, a part to play in that too. So, oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was published in a time before we had instant messaging and emails. You know, it was hitting the news before the journal with the article itself was even in people's old fashioned mailboxes, right? Like, this is when you didn't read the article until it came in your actual 
mailbox, right? Mm. And so it was already hitting the news um, as, you know, what is your doctor not telling you? Um, there's, um, uh, if you look at the Time magazine front page that shows it, you know, oh, coincidence or not, that there's other like horrendous images that happen to be in that study. You know, there's a skull from something. There was some other story that, anyways, it just makes the whole entire cover look extremely ominous um, and more frightful. And so, yeah, the media just ran away with it. Um, be, and so it was a, a poor interpretation. And the physician community didn't have, um, didn't, didn't go back over and look at those results and really try to reanalyze them for another number of years. Um, I was a newly sort of minted um, menopause person in 2016 when they actually did publish longer term results of the WHI, which completely explained and minimized a whole bunch of those fears that were, you know, publicized in 2002. But that didn't make the news. Right. Like how many doctors know about the longer term outcomes that were published in 2016 and all of the guidelines that have since recommended that hormone therapy is the gold standard and it's safe and effective where for most people, the benefits outweigh the risk. How many people know that mm. people still in, are quoting hormone therapy gives you breast cancer from 2002. So this is a huge gap where we really, really need the CME getting rolling out faster, faster. Amen. So I didn't realize that they had longer term data in 2016, like like more follow up essentially. Yeah. And it just so the 2016, yeah. So that one actually looked at then people in a subgroup analysis. So that's where the window of opportunity theory came from. Is that when they actually separated out the women who were under the age of 60, they didn't actually, even though they were on oral Premarin and oral Provera, they didn't actually have um, the same clot problems as um as the women in the older age groups um and then when they subdivided out the people who had had a uterus removed had had a hysterectomy and were on premarin only they didn't have elevated chances of breast cancer compared to the people who were in premarin and provera so then that also then spurred on a lot of the research now about what progestin we choose um and so now a lot of um, people with their hormone therapy are um, having micronized um, progesterone which is more similar to what your ovaries actually do make and when you look at when you go to menopause conferences they will rank all the different types of progestins when it comes to you know how effective they are at you know if, if you have someone who really needs aggressive sort of um, atrophy of their uterine lining maybe they've got some extra weight some other risks for uterine cancer you know, some of them are, are stronger in their progestin effect, but the micronized progesterone for a lot of people gives them some sleep benefit, is really well tolerated, um, seems to be less inflammatory towards the breast. And so that is kind of where now the progestin component of hormone therapy is leaning. And and some of that is is thanks to the WHI. So it's not that it's a study that we should, you know, flush, right? All research is good research if you know what you've researched and you know how to interpret the results. Mm -hmm. And so the WHI is an example of, um, you know, poor interpretation of research. So maybe we could take a, a step back to in, in like almost like hormone replacement one-on-one, like you, so you see someone in, mm -hmm. in your clinic and, and get a sense of like, help us get a sense of what their options will be. What will be the indications for estrogen versus progest, uh, progesterone and types of progesterone, as you kind of alluded to, like what, at least at a high level, like how, how do you approach that? Yeah. So first I think it's important to realize that there are some things that hormone therapy is not hormone therapy is not the birth control pill. 
So that ends up being point number one, because so many people who have been told earlier on in their life that they shouldn't be on the pill, they either had, you know, the atypical migraines or a risk of clutter or they, you know, they're a smoker. All of those contraindications for the birth control pill are not the same as hormone replacement therapy. So, you know, that's the first, you know, lesson. The second is that it's not necessarily for everyone, right? So there are people who don't have a lot of symptoms. Um, of course, you know, people who've had breast cancer um, uh, are recommended at this point if they've had estrogen receptor positive cancer to not be on hormone therapy. Um, and so, you know, some of those first big categories, you know, of what, what is this person's risk, you know, coming into their menopause? Are there truly contraindications to hormone therapy? Contraindications to actual systemic menopausal hormone therapy are way fewer than for the birth control pill. You have to have active uncontrolled blood pressure. You need to have active liver disease. You need to have um, abnormal uterine bleeding that hasn't been yet worked up uh, to make sure that you don't have uterine cancer because that would be estrogen you know, responsive. Same thing with breast. You shouldn't have an abnormal mammogram that you're still working up and start on hormone therapy. It's a very small list of rather severe conditions, right? And none of those apply to vaginal estrogen therapies, right? So pretty much... Literally, any woman can go on to a vaginal product. So they're under the umbrella of, of menopausal hormone therapies, but it really is important to kind of say, okay, when this patient's coming to me, do they need systemic hormone therapy that's going to go through their whole, whole body, or do they really need the targeted vaginal therapy? Because the targeted vaginal therapy, pretty much anyone should go on to it, right? It's, it's a shame that anyone waits 12 months for me to tell them that. Right. And what's the so, well, like? What would be systemic, the logic between? Oh, you're doing it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so systemic hormone therapy. If you have a uterus, your uterus has to be accommodated for because estrogen, um, when you give it back to someone, even as menopausal hormone therapy in a very, very small, very, very level dose, it does have the potential to tweak estrogen receptors the way it always has. And in your uterine lining, your um, estrogen receptors are um, cause growth, right? And so if you have a uterus, you must accommodate for that um, with a progestin. Um, so micronized progesterone, any of the other um, uh, progestins that we have. And then, of course, there's a few other new products um, like Tibolone. Um, Duovive um, was available. It's been off the market for the last couple of years, but we hear that it's coming back in the new year. Um, both of those products are not necessarily estrogen progesterone per se, but they do tweak estrogen receptors to help your symptoms, make sure that you're not having um, uterine lining growth. And that's kind of like, those are the basics when it comes to your systemic hormone therapy. Now there's tons of options within there. There are oral tablets, you know, there are, um, uh, there's a gel that you can absorb through your skin. There's a sticker patch. Um, uh, the, the transdermal or through the skin methods um, are particularly important when it comes to the estrogen, because again, a lot of people are hearing about bioidentical estrogen. They want hormone therapy to be as safe and natural as possible. There's a lot of marketing and sort of misconception out there. Most menopausal hormone therapies are bioidentical estrogen, bioidentical. Um, but when most people are coming to their doctor and asking for a bioidentical, their doctor thinks, oh, this person wants compounding. I don't know how to compound. And so then people go off to and, and get compounded creams. It's not necessary. Um, gels and patches and oral tablets are bioidentical estradiol. And if you throw in there um, the uh, micronized progesterone, then, then, then that's the formulation that everybody really wants. But there are lots of them. There are lots of dose options and, and root adjustments that we can make to individualize your therapy. And like, what will make somebody, like when you say 
let's use vaginal versus a transdermal patch or oral. Like what, what, what are the factors that, uh, what, what factors into that decision? Yeah. Well, because we don't see menopause as a disease, it does have impacts on our health and our symptoms, but it's not, it's, it is a physiologic process we're meant to go through. There's a little bit of chatter out there in the community about people arguing whether or not this is a disease hormone deficiency state that everyone should be on hormones, get them back in your body because your body always made them. That's kind of on one end of the pendulum swing. And then of course there are still the people on the other side saying hormone therapy will kill you. Stay away from it. So the truth is in the middle as always, right? So if you have symptoms, you should be treated. You should have these things um, assessed. And a lot of people who don't want to be on hormone therapy, it is because of fear. Now, my job is always to make sure if people are not having symptoms and don't want to be on hormones, I want to make sure that they're making that decision based on other factors, not because they are afraid that hormone therapy is going to have a horrendous, you know, it's going to kill them with a clot or with breast cancer. I want to make sure they've got information to make an educated and clear-minded decision about it. Because if you have symptoms, hot flushes, night sweats being the top of the list, but you know, joint pain, mood problems, sleep issues, da, 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 like the list is long. If you have symptoms, we should treat them and hormone replacement therapy is considered to be the gold standard. But if you don't have some of those systemic symptoms and you're not at excessive risk of osteoporosis so that you maybe want to be on it for that extra benefit of prevention, even if it doesn't, necessarily make a difference to how you feel day to day, then 80% of women, and I think it's higher than that because let's face it, we just don't ask the questions, right? At least 80% of women will end up having some genital urinary syndrome menopause. So even if not everybody goes on to systemic hormone therapy, really virtually everybody should be thinking and talking about um, vaginal health and vulvar health. Yeah, basically it sounds like on the degree of symptom of symptoms and how much are um, yeah, how how symptomatic they are would be the scale in terms of how aggressive we want to be with HRT. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, in your mind, then who, who, like, what are the 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 risks? You know, like when we factor in, you know, the some of the concerns that were d- dispelled on on a WHI study. You know, say you got that 49-year-old woman that is starting to have the hot flashes, mood disturbances, all all these things, and they're asking you, what do I actually have to worry about with this treatment? What what do we have to worry about? So when people start on hormone therapy, um, there are initiation side effects. So it isn't uncommon. It's probably some of the, um, the most common reasons why people try hormone therapy and then say no to it is that when you start it up, um, you can get those estrogen receptors tweaked in your body. So you can get some uterine bleeding or spotting. You can get some breast tenderness. Some people will have, you know, more headaches or some nausea. You know, if those are um, just at the time when you start these low dose therapies, they do tend to go away with time. You know, we have protocols for saying, you know, how long is it? You know, every person who goes on to hormone therapy, if they spot within the first couple of months, you shouldn't just go and back up and stop it. Like some of these things you need to ride through if you understand the mechanism of how it's working. Um, 
So those initiation side effects um, are, I think, a, a risk if you don't understand, um, you know, what what they're doing, what they are, and, and that they'll likely go away. If you are at elevated risk of um, clots, you know, if you have um, excess weight, if you already have risks of, of heart disease and such, then if your symptoms are significant, you can, in many situations, be on the transdermal estrogen because the transdermal estrogen is such a low dose that when it goes directly into your bloodstream, it misses that first pass effect in the liver that is the concern with birth control pills, right? Now, birth control pills, because they are a higher dose and they have a different therapeutic target, even if you do the birth control patch or the ring that goes in your vagina, that doesn't necessarily impact on the clot risk, you know, because the the medication dose, you know, is just higher. So there is some that gets around to your liver. But when it comes to hormone therapy, um, the transdermal estrogen gel and patch are, you know, really an excellent option that that takes care of that risk for a lot of people. Um, and, and then when people talk about breast cancer, again, it's like the, the, the data does not suggest that hormone therapy gives you breast cancer. The data suggests that if you are going to be on hormone therapy long term, into those decades when when breast cancer risk is elevating anyway, so into your 60s and maybe even into your 70s, because, hey, there are a lot of people whose hot flushes do not seem to go away. So they are staying on their hormone therapy long term. And then you're weighing that benefit of the hot flushes being resolved, you know, the sleep benefit, having your quality of life so that you can be exercising and maybe not drinking the alcohol and keeping your weight under control. You need to be weighing those benefits of still being on your hormone therapy with the theoretical possibility that if you are still trickling that little tiny bit of estrogen into your body and you have abnormal cells in your breasts, right? Cancers for the most part grow really slowly. So anyone who comes to me and says, Oh, my mom went on hormone therapy and two years later it gave her breast cancer. No, that is not the way the mechanism of action works, right? That cancer was already there. It just didn't get found. It was already there when she started on the hormone therapy, right? So what we think is that the long-term users might have a slight increased incidence in breast cancer because that estrogen then might cause estrogen receptor positive abnormal cell clusters to grow either faster or grow when they might not have and maybe atrophied. So there is a very small blip um, of increased breast cancer in longer term users. But again, if they're going for their mammograms and they're having regular appointments because they are using hormone therapy and so they're getting checked up every year if they are you know um, uh, knowing uh, to avoid alcohol and all these other different things the data would also suggest that people who get breast cancer when they're on hormone therapy are more likely to be diagnosed with an estrogen receptor positive cancer which can is then more responsive to treatment so in the end even the breast cancer risk has to really be it needs to be a more thorough discussion and and that's why you can't just Take someone who comes into your office who says they're having hot flushes. Right now, women aren't actually receptive to just having a hormone therapy uh, prescription given to them, and they'll just go and take it because they hear all this other noise. Mm. And so you need to address all those other fears and misconceptions that women have about hormone replacement therapy so that they really understand and can choose that this therapy is, is beneficial for them, and they really understand what the risks are and are not. Yeah, I mean, like as we alluded to, it's personalized, and 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 you also got to weigh the fa- the risk, not only the symptom symptomatology, but you know, especially in those younger folk, the risk of you know, osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, like that has to be weighed into it too. So it, it's just yeah. not, I, yeah. you know, as you alluded to, it's not black and white. 
when it comes to the decision making. And I, I think this is what I'm also hearing that's encouraging is these clinics, like when you sit down with a patient, it's not a this is not a ten minute discussion. This is this is nope. this is uh, an hour long of really getting to know them, acknowledging the fears and providing them with the most reliable yeah. information so that it could be you know, they, they can make the best decision for themselves. So it's, it's good stuff here. And, and, you know, are the, like part of my selfish reason for covering a lot of this, this stuff is, is when it comes to healthcare providers right now, many of our nurses and, and allied health professionals are going through this and for them to be yeah. frontline when we're, we're, we're short, you know, like uh, yeah. a lot of them would benefit yeah. from knowing that th- there are treatments now. There've always been treatments, but the, there's treatments that could help alleviate the symptoms. Yeah. And if we don't start addressing that as well as a reason why it's important for us to talk about menopause, you're right. Um, 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 education, you know, how many teachers are midlife women? How many nurses, how many doctors are now, and family doctors are midlife women. So if they don't even know that some of the coping um, issues that they've been having and the horrible sleep they've been having and the mood and the, the vaginal dryness, if they don't know that some of these things are their own menopause and um, then don't have therapy for them, it contributes to them then um, um, feeling like they're not competent at their work, um, you know, their relationships, then having more troubles. It, 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 it contributes to then like, you know, a, a, a slow, steady sort of disintegration of so many aspects of your life. And um, how many people right now who are leaving medicine are middle-aged women? Um, how many of those people might have, you know, it could have contributed to their burnout that they aren't um, understanding what their symptoms are and that they, they could have help? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's an unanswered question that I have, but it's, um, I can't help but thinking it because I have so many clients who are um, uh, who are in the who are healthcare providers or um, and I have so many clients who have told me that they've retired early or not gone for a promotion or switched careers or done something because they they thought they were going crazy like they, mm-hmm. they thought that something in their life had gone wrong and was broken and they couldn't figure it out and and so they 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 quit they felt they had no options mm. yeah that's a, it's it's so sad to think about that like just once again, when there's a potential treatment option there for them and because of messaging, because of fear, it's, mm-hmm. it hasn't been addressed. So, I mean, this is why you're, this is why you are on the show. This is why you're doing the magical things that you're doing. And I know you, you don't need me to tell you that you're changing so many lives by, by providing this care. So maybe Ardell, how do people, learn more about actually two things one is mm. like work working what's a good source for them to be educated on themselves because this is a also i'd imagine a patient population that they go after they're going to read everything that that goes comes their yep. way so maybe yep. we could say number one a good source for some of yep. this information and number two where do people learn more about you and your clinic and so on well, one number one is don't go to Google and type in menopause because <laughs> that's a disaster, yeah. right? That is an absolute disaster. Like then you get all of the, you know, the supplements and the, this, like it's, it's, you know, it's really hard. The information is out there. The societies have websites and handouts. There are good Instagram accounts of, um, you know, people like me who are trying to skirt around the system because if you have, 
you know, my wait list is, is has now become a year. Um, Dr. Wolfman's clinic in Toronto is two. Um, you know, it was just on the national the other day, right? So when we have this backlog of people um, who need help, um, of course they go online or they go anywhere else that they can, right? So there are good Instagram accounts now. Um, I mean, you can go to my Instagram. It's just my name. And you can see who I follow. Um, I'm not posting as much as I'd like to because, you know, I'm just dealing with volume of my clinic. But I do post every once in a while. Um, and you can, you know, creep on my on the people that I'm following. Um, and you'll see that who the good menopause accounts are and the good doctors. Um, there are lots of really great books because, again, it depends on depends on where you're at, right? People who are already overwhelmed and sleep deprived and finding brain fog, cognition issues, whatever, you tell them that they need a, to a patient needs to read a book like this. Good luck, right? So you need to have small, bite-sized amounts of information. It needs to be individualized, and it's really hard actually to find that type of appropriate resource right now for people. Right. Um, and so that's why I think often the little sound bites and such on, on Instagram and things are tempting, but they don't really give you the whole picture. Um, there are good societies that do put out handouts. So one of my favorites that I always recommend is the Australasian menopause society. We have a Canadian menopause society. There is a North American menopause society. There's a British menopause society. Like, they're in, they're in every single country, but the Australasians, pretty much all of us refer to them because they have a database of information sheets that is extensive. Every single different topic um, is there in a kind of more concise PDF, you know, so if you are worried about migraines and hormone therapy or um, uh, weight gain and menopause or um, vulvovaginal symptoms of menopause, they've, they've made them into small little topics so that you can read them concisely and then the recommendations and the references, the scientific references are there. So I like recommending the Australasian Menopause Society, even if it's a bit of a, a it's, there's a lot of information, it's a bit of information overload, but if you can find the handout that applies to your symptoms, that is something you can take to your healthcare provider because they will see that as an official society handout. They will see the, um, the um, evidence-based um, guideline and, and you're more likely to get a, a good conversation and maybe some therapy out of that. So um, that's one of my favorite things um, to tell people to do is to go to the AMS. Fantastic. Well, I just want to commend you for all the great work you're doing. Thank you for agreeing to come on the show. This was, I mean, I, I could consider myself so much more educated. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's nice to have a colleague that you go to now for a reliable source when it comes to these uh, these issues so thank you so much for coming on oh thanks for asking me on well we could do this again we could do hours and hours and hours of menopause if you can't tell i'll never stop talking <laughs> so uh we love it thank you so much well i hope you enjoyed that one folks make sure to follow us on instagram youtube tiktok facebook twitter at quadcast leave it in comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com Make sure to leave that five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Helps with the visibility of the show. We appreciate you. Make sure to sign up at quadcast.substack.com where you get everything Solvent Healthcare. We're calling it Solvent Healthcare Media. Getting it all. And those with a paid subscription, we get a membership for Solvent Wellness where we're changing the boogie for healthcare professionals. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. We'll connect again with y'all real soon. Peace.